Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. The first thing that struck me was the smell. I found myself alone in a mud-walled room with straw and animal feces scattered across the dirt floor. My hands and feet were bound with metal cuffs. It was dark. What little light there was slipped in through a small hole in the ceiling where a pipe passed. The stifling heat left me feeling faint. Randomly placed in the corner was a red bucket, which was to serve as my toilet. There was no mattress. The floor would be my bed. The pungent odour was the first thing that hit me as I regained consciousness. It was unbearable and turned my stomach. It wasn't just the room that smelled. I did too. My immediate thoughts? Where am I? Will I ever see my family again? Just a few days earlier, I'd been at home in Lahore, Pakistan. It was a normal day like any other. My routine was to wake up, get dressed and take a 10-minute drive to my workplace. To my complete horror and shock, I was ambushed on my way to work, beaten and drugged waking up to unfamiliar surroundings, shackled. This was now my world. How can your whole life change in an instant? How can everything you know and trust and depend on, every person you love, every comfort you've come to enjoy and embrace, disappear in a moment and be replaced by pain, loneliness and despair? When that happens, how does one go on? Would I survive? These were questions that it turned out I would have four and a half years to contemplate. I'm Dr. Rajan Basra, and today on the War Studies podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming Shabazz Tasir, author, businessman, and son of the late Salman Tasir, governor of Punjab. Shabazz was held in captivity for almost five years by the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan in one of the most high-profile kidnapping cases in Pakistan. He now recounts his experience in his astonishing memoir, Lost to the World, a memoir of faith, family, and five years in terrorist captivity. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. So just off the back of the excerpt you read, you had four and a half years to contemplate your situation, and you've now spent several years since your release writing this book. So I suppose our first question I would ask to you is, what's it like writing a book about your time in captivity? Um, it, it's not easy to write um, something like this. Uh, I had a lot of questions that I asked myself. Uh, sometimes it would get a bit emotionally uh, drain. It's, it, it is a bit emotionally draining, even if you read it. Read it. It's it's you know it's a difficult book to go through. Mm. But I have a great sense of triumph over what happened to me. Uh, there were a lot of things for a long time, you know, when I say that I had four and a half years to contemplate, there were a lot of things that I thought I may never recover from. Um, but, you know, God was very kind and very merciful. I can never explain to people that, you know, one of the reasons that I'm sitting here, that I'm confident um, about where I am in life, about writing this book, selling it, traveling, working, is it takes a lot of love 
you know to to f- put back together a completely broken man um and i didn't break because of anything that i'd ever done in my life i lived a very happy life and a very good life but i was torn apart by animals and it really like it took an overwhelming amount of love from from the people closest to me my friends my family all the people that had been stolen from me that i thought i'd never see again and each and every single one of them the effort the time sometimes we give up on people you know they never gave up on me while i was in captivity and they never gave up on me when i came back mm-hmm. and um so i just i'm so blessed to have such incredible people uh, around me i just want to rewind to the beginning because it seems like during your period of captivity you went through a huge range of emotions you were almost on a journey psychologically emotionally yeah. even spiritually yeah. not to mention physically, physically moving from place to place uh, enduring the torture that you suffered and so on so let's think back to the moment that you're captured and as you recounted you thought it was just a robbery they're yeah. there for your watch they're there for your car but then after a while you realize no they're after you as the son of your father yeah so what were your emotions like in that first period of captivity when you realized okay i'm here i'm here for a week i'm here for two weeks now when will you be released what was going through your mind and what were you thinking you know if i take you back to the second that i was attacked i took the same road i still take the same road to work You, you don't avoid the road it's it's you know it's like i work if you take lahore and you compare it with say london it's like i work on oxford street so it's like the main commercial road of of lahore all the multinationals are there all the brands are there everybody works there you can't avoid it same place same office same street same everything if it was on a more obscure road no, no, no. would you avoid would you avoid no, the site it's it's the main road Yeah. you know and uh, you there's nothing to avoid there's there's never been anything that's ever happened there i'm yeah. the worst thing that's happened to the road i mean in terms of your own uh, mind state when you travel on that road do you think so it's really funny i was i was doing a a podcast in lahore with these two students and they were like you know we've heard a lot of your interviews and we wanted to do something different i was like hey why don't we drive down the road that i was picked up and like trace my roots i've not done that either <laughs> okay, <laughs> so that's definitely a so, different idea so yeah. we stopped by exactly where i was uh, picked up and I, and the student is like looking outside and i knew he's just going to turn to me and he's going to say you know do you get like some kind of a thing and as soon as he's turning i was like bah! <laughs> i was like no you know I, i don't feel anything you know um but you know the thing about routine is and i'm sure you have one as well you wake up in the morning it's kind of robotic you, you don't even think about it you're just going you drive without thinking where's the left where's the right you're not thinking it's just all automatic and that was you on the day me on the day without a worry in the world and suddenly 10 men with kalashnikovs jump me and they pull me out of my car and they're beating me and they throw me in the back of another car and the whole time i'm telling them look you can have my watch you can have the wallet why are you doing this there's no need for it and my kidnapper turned around and he just looked at me and he said shabaz i've come for you and that's when this fear that i've never really experienced in my life before or after um and then they injected me with ketamine and i woke up 3 days later on a road to waziristan like you know if pakistan is 
the circle. Waziristan is a dot on the side, but that dot is on the border of Afghanistan and Iran. And it's a place where men go to disappear or die and never come back. And living in Pakistan, I was 27 when I got picked up. So I'd lived there for 27 years. <clears throat> and I've been from, you know, Karachi to Balochistan to all the way to the Khunjara Pass with the border with China. But I have never, I didn't even know that an area like this existed. Like, where militants had carved out a little city where so many different groups were operating. So you're in Waziristan. You wake up after being drugged. Do you realize where you are? No idea. It took me about seven months and, and only because my kidnapper, he's like, I'm not going to let you die so easily. And then he told me how when I was being kidnapped, three of his people got picked up, how close those people were to him, how he wouldn't kill me, um, had to keep me alive for a trade. And I laughed and I said, you should never have told me that you were never going to kill me. And he just, he's like, you shouldn't worry about me killing you. You should worry about where you are and this place killing you. This is your captor, Muhammad Ali. How would you describe his personality then? Because if he's holding you captive over months and eventually years, you are having regular conversations with him and interactions. He was a madman. He was a evil, cruel madman. And I mean, I can, I can tell you funny stories and I can tell you stories of me debating with him and fighting with him and him torturing me. But, you know, when you touch somebody else and you start taking off pieces of their body you average human beings do not A. enjoy pain and B. enjoy giving pain so there was a sadistic side you know look I've seen sadistic as well you know in school and stuff kids burning ants with magnifying glass with this is just not something that you can see in movies, you can read. You can't see these kind of people. No one has ever interacted with them. They are... I don't even know what the words are. They're so cruel. So I was in solitary. I was being tortured. Like, just violence like I can't explain... Um, I almost bled to death. Um, they sewed my mouth shut and didn't let me eat for a week. They sleep deprived me for another week, which, by the way, has broken my the way that I sleep forever. I can't sleep more than four and a half hours, five hours in a day. They buried me in the ground 12, 12 hours at a time up to my neck. And videotape all of this and send it to my mother. And when this wasn't happening to me, the guard who was in charge of me would be bullying me, berating me, beating me, you know... I don't even know what the words are. They're so cruel. And you would use that to describe Muhammad Ali, the leader of this group? Or did you also see these traits in other militants there? The militants that are in a position of power are like him. He might have been a bit more intelligent than the average leader, but they all share the same values. I felt bad for the foot soldiers. I, like the guy who I used to listen to the Man United games with. This is on the radio. I never thought that he wanted to be here. So he was a young boy from uh, Tajikistan who made it to Manchester, illegal immigrant. Mother started a process. He backed the car into someone, or, you know, got into a very small case but was highlighted and was going to be deported. 
So the mother said, "Make a runner, get out of Manchester." He, there's someone in Paris. They'll help you. He went to Paris. They said, "Go to Turkey. They'll help you." Got to Turkey. They put him on one of these exact same bus that just, you know, how these people were going to Greece, and this migrant boat uh, turned over, capsized, and these people died. So the how they get there is through these routes. Mm-hmm. So he goes from Turkey into Iran, into Balochistan, and then from Balochistan he arrives in Mirli, and there I am, you militants, and you know he's like. I mean, obviously, he had no idea where he was going. But they gave him a Klashenkov. They gave him a 13-year-old girl. Said, "This is your passport. This is your constitution. Go and take what you like." You know, this is you empower someone who's been rejected. You know, who can't even back the car into someone without being deported from a country. Right? Now he's so powerful. How are you going to deport me? How are you going to separate me from my mother? I'll take what's mine. Mm. Right? And it's a different. You know. He may may not have wanted that life, but he embraced it. He loved it. He lived it. But that doesn't mean that he forgot his life before. You know, he still liked. Uh, uh, I miss that band, but you know, Zayn Malik and uh, One Direction. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is the kind of conversations I read. Like, I like One Direction. I'd be like, I like Backstreet Boys when I was your age. <laughs> uh, but so he comes in and he's like, Do you like football? And I thought, you know, these are trick questions in tough places. You should always say no. <laughs> so, but what have I got to lose? So I was like, I do. And he's like, let me guess, you're probably like a Barcelona fan or Chelsea fan. Or I was like, no, United fan. So we started like going back and forth with questions, like because he's also a Manchester. He's United also fan. a Manchester United fan. So this guy, he's like, you want to listen to a game? So I, I just, I said, yeah. How? So he brought the radio in on Saturday, and it was Sports World with Lee James, and and I, you know, Lee to, kind of takes you into the ground, and you can hear the sounds, and you know, suddenly I'm closing my eyes, and I've been going to Old Trafford, you know, I was a kid in college, and and I can see it, and I can I can hear the Stratford end, and I can Rooney, you know what I mean? I remember I, it was my first game. Jesse Lingard scored in that game. No, maybe he didn't, but I can't remember. But I actually cried. I couldn't believe I just heard a Man United game. This was a connection to the outside world. It was my first connection, and then I had the BBC, and I would listen to news, and you know, then I knew what was going on. I heard the song by Pharrell called "Happy," mm-hmm. and it was like the song of the year in I think 2013-14. This is strange because it's almost as if you struck up a friendship with your captor. I used to think that. I used to think that maybe we're friends. But I was telling you about the horrific torture, and uh, the torture was actually stopped by Muhammad Ali's brother-in-law and his mother-in-law, not by Sohail, my guard. Mm. But while I was, so I went through two rounds of torture: one while I was in jail, and then one round while I was with Muhammad Ali in his house. And that started off like the first thing was they um, removed all my nails from my hand and my feet, and they sent it to my mother. It's quite painful, but. <laughs> But it's not. It's it's. I'm not dead. You know what I mean. The flesh removal was just something I can't explain to you in words. And suddenly, this woman. Now you have to understand, women over there they live behind this thing called the parda, which is like a way of life. You can never come in front of a man, voice, hand, presence, smell. Totally different section of the house. Totally different section of the house, separated by um, by 
like a tent, <laughs> like a thick tent. So really, you should have no interaction. And I'm Muhammad also in a jail. I'm also in a jail inside the house. So I have no interaction anyways. But it's so tight that you can't like I'm literally I'm telling you, you can't even smell. You know, that's how forbidden contact is. The fact that his mother-in-law broke these barriers and came to where the men were screaming. She was a big woman. She was the man who founded the IMU, his wife. So she, it's like Osama bin Laden's wife, mm-hmm. right? So she stormed in and she said, you, because, I mean, the screams. And, but it was done by his brother-in-law, another guy who probably, he was born there. His father was the founder of the IMU. He was very proud to be his father's son. But he couldn't commit acts of violence. His nature was such, he was a timid guy. And when he saw what his brother-in-law, the guy who, he admired his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was a mufti, he used to give fatwas, he used to, you know, when he used to speak to people, he used to rile them up and make them happy and cry and all of it in the same, you know, very inspirational speaker. But he couldn't, he couldn't see this. And he, off, he, we, he was my friend. He became my friend, you know, because he, he fought his brother-in-law Give him soap. Give him. Why are you tree? He's a human being. And then, you know, the mother-in-law stood up for me. My kidnapper's wife said what you're doing is not right. I'm not, don't, you know. Now when everyone in your house has suddenly turned against you, your your life becomes a living hell. So during this period in captivity, Muhammad Ali, he's torturing you out of his own sadism, his own desire to see you suffer. Shockingly, no. Why was he torturing you? He thought it's the best way to extract money from my mother. I mean, the demands were ridiculous for me. The money was insane and the list of people that they wanted to trade was, you know, insane. 25 militants. So Muhammad Ali was in direct contact with your mother yeah. and would send her videos. This is over, over email. They had some, you know, the, the intelligence agency in Pakistan gave an address. When, you know, initially when they made contact, number, address you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the number that they had was particular number. Nobody else could call or know about that number. The email that they had was a particular email. Nobody else could email. So it was very like, you know, you get the email, you get the call, and everyone's like, oh, it's him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, you, yeah. your mother would be forced to watch these videos. So, so forcing is like different, right? They would have hidden... Uh, messages like when they buried me in the ground it was like a 12 hour long video because they left me in for 12 hours so she had to watch this 12 hour video and find a clue and if she didn't find it she'd have to watch it again and then she'd have to call the guy and say is this the clue he said no look again you'll find it did you fast forward Mm. but it's a form of torture. torture when you when you tear someone's child on camera and send them the footage. You are torturing that person. Mm. And by the way, one of, my, the only, one of my biggest guilts, and God bless my mother because she's an amazing and a very strong woman. But one of the things that I, I have an overwhelming guilt of what my mother had to be put through because of me. So they're doing this deliberately to ensure that your mother goes through that and that somewhere she breaks and suddenly pays them $65 million and 25 of the highest-ranking militants and gets me out. But it's crazy, right? It's not... Very crazy. She's being tortured, but she can't... She doesn't have $65 million or 25 militants. Yeah, so they're focusing the attention, it seems, on your mother as if she could influence the outcome of the negotiation. By the way, you have to remember... Sorry, 
my kidnapper was absolutely for being sadistic, for being crazy, for being all of these things. He was also absolutely delusional. Mm. He believed with till the second that he died that he would get this money and these people and that he had crippled the government of Pakistan. So your impression of him was he obviously had this sadistic streak to his personality. There was this delusional side as well. Which drove him. Did you get a sense of a strategic side to his thinking? I mean, this kidnapping was extravagant. Uh, was it's not about extravagant? It was so well planned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how there's that show Money Heist? It's nothing to what these guys did. They literally picked up the governor of Punjab. I mean, he was, my father had passed away, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. They bought a house. How they bought the house? It's not like you can just buy houses, right? how they've got someone's ID card, they made it, they bought a house, they bought 25 mobiles, you know, disposable ones, use, never use again, uh, cars, just to throw away. You know, they had, everything was so meticulously planned. Unbelievable detail. They knew where I was going, where I was coming, how I was moving around, how many cars I had, what car I would take on what day. Just fantastic. And that, that okay, that's one part of it. Then, in my, less than, I think, April 2012, Okay, um, and you guys would have to Google this for uh, the exact dates and context. But they attacked a jail in Banu, which is an area in Waziristan, a big city in Waziristan. And uh, they attacked a jail held by, uh, you know, Fata police or whatever the police. And they freed 200 militants. And that jail only they had the highest, like, you know, in that area, militants. And they, fr- they broke through, fought the security forces, defeated them, freed everyone and ran away. I saw them, you know, they attacked the Karachi airport with 19 young suicide bombers. They attacked the Karachi airport. Now, the Pakistani authorities said we saved the international airport. But the plan, the plan was made in front of me. Their only job was to attack the cargo terminal and destroy everything there and let Pakistan know that this is happening. They attacked the GHQ, which is where the generals live. They attacked check posts. They had suicide blasts. They just, they, and he used to plan and execute all of these things. So if they're capable of carrying out these kind of attacks, of kidnapping people, what was your impression of their approach to the negotiations? They had these fantastical demands, the release of their comrades, of other captives held in jails of the Pakistani government. They demanded millions of dollars from you. Did you get a sense of how the negotiations proceeded? I never, I wasn't there. I would, I, they would bring recordings to me and it was hopeless. See, whereas a lot of things that he planned and executed were, okay, they worked out for them. It's still delusional, right? The reason he's attacking these prisons and the GHQ is because he thinks he's going to conquer Pakistan. Mm. So though he's successful at a check post or he's successful because he attacked a car or kidnapped a car, he's not going to conquer Pakistan. This is all tri- like ridiculous, right? The grand strategy. The grand strategy is just crazy. So he believed with everything inside him that $65 million is nothing for you. Mm. 25 militants have been easy. Just... No one. And he said, you should be proud that I've asked this. This is your worth. I said, it's not. My worth is what it says in my ATM, bro. It doesn't work like this. But, you know, he believed it. He believed it till the second that he died, that I will get this. I know from my own research, when I've interviewed the family members of people held hostage by jihadi groups in, in Lebanon, Whenever I've spoken with families, they've all said to me, look, 
when my son was kidnapped, he wasn't the only one kidnapped. We were kidnapped with him. Yeah. We're not physically in the room with him, but we're there with him. And it's, it was so apparent the effect it can have on these families. So I wonder what effect did it have on your mother going through this process? I, I keep saying that she's the strongest person. You know, my father was a hero and my mother is the bravest person I ever met. My, I don't think my father would have been able to do half the things he did if it wasn't for my mother. And uh, it's, it's a guilt, you know. Sometimes when I'm out at night, you know, 11.30, I'll get a call from her. Are you okay? Yeah. Please message. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, my mother always told my family, it's not about us. It's about him. And I always tell my family, it's not about me. It's about her. Um, and yeah, it's difficult, you know. It's it. She's so brave, I, I can't tell you. Like, she's just taken all of this like a superhuman. And the thing is, it's not broken her. She strives, continues, works, and protects us every day. She's still the head of the family. Mm. You know, she's still my boss at work. I couldn't even put my own memoir down without her. Mm. Um, so she's just the most phenomenal human being. And... Uh, I'm just lucky to be her son. When you're given training on how to survive captivity, uh, these so-called hostile environment training courses, one of the messages they have is if you're ever kidnapped, you want to be useful to your kidnappers. So oh if they, if they I wish I had gotten this. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody, somebody, I can clean, I can cook, I can <laughs> drive, I can do anything you like. In the sense that if they're motivated by money, you want to tell them you could help get them money somehow. Yeah. So did you get a sense throughout your period of captivity that in a way you had to be useful to the people who are holding you hostage? Uh, I was lucky that the three guys got picked up. Otherwise, you're not useful to militants. And I promise you, you can study it across the board. If the demand isn't met, the man is gone. If you look at the statistics produced by insurance companies regarding... It's very difficult to get insured. <laughs> Nobody wants to insure me. <laughs> well, they would say that the survival rate for people who are kidnapped by politically or ideologically motivated groups is Zero. It's about 3%. Yeah. It's, it's very, very low. Like I remember there was a Jordanian pilot who was captured by ISIS. Yes. Okay. And I think that pilot had some link with the royal family. Uh, of Jordan like you know he came from a bit of privileges maybe his father was a defense minister or something they set him on fire they killed him and the demand was ridiculous and the government was willing to negotiate they didn't care for them it's a bigger victory to kill mm -hmm. than to get money when you're held in captivity do you hear the news about the rise of ISIS and yeah I followed it throughout because, you know, when I, I was taken when the war in Syria hadn't begun. Mm. So I was taken in August and maybe it was a month into turmoil. Mm. It hadn't quite exploded into a war. Osama bin Laden was killed in, uh, in literally the first week, couple of weeks of May, mm. right? And I was gone in August. Um, and I'm telling you, uh, I know, like I found out that uh, Gaddafi had been killed. You know, like four years later, I was like, what? They killed Gaddafi? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Overthrown, dead on the street. And I was like, what happened? Is Syria gone? ISIS? Uh, Bashar is gone? Assad is gone? 
the the rise of ISIS was actually fundamental to your own story yeah. because the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan at some point decided to pledge allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and this caused a rupture with the Taliban. Because they said that the Pledge of Allegiance is with us, the Khalifa is ours, the Caliphate is ours, so it shows you how mad they are inside their own politics. Mm -hmm. And the Afghan Taliban didn't leave a man, woman or child. In their conflict with the IMU? The IMU, and the IMU was their front line and most dedicated and loyal partners, and yet they came down when the sword comes down, the sword comes down. So you had a inside look in a way to the I saw it all happen and you would pick this up because you would hear the my, conversations you know my kidnapper for all his delusions he he really like sometimes used to give me this information like I was sitting there when they planned the Karachi airport attack with the suicide bombers like they were on the run right and we lived in what you call markazes which is like very close quarters yeah and so I was kept with Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. like this so you know sit over there and you know like when, now they're planning the operation and the date and he kept turning around he's like you know if you like mocking me like he's like if you call your mother and tell her to pay the ransom then you can go back and tell your security forces that Muhammad Ali wants to attack the airport and you can become a hero so pay what, and then you know like he made me what happened was after the Karachi airport attack happened on the radio they started saying that Tehreek-e Taliban Pakistan have carried the attack he got so infuriated he made me pick up the phone call my mother and claim responsibility Wow. Yeah. So I was the one who explained to the, my mother, obviously the ISI was listening, that by the way, did you see what they did to the Karachi airport? That wasn't the Taliban. It was the IMU. And and this guy in particular planned it. So in a way, you had first-hand experience of witnessing this, you could call it indoctrination process, or the way that they raise someone to become a suicide bomber. Yeah. And, you know, there's a story in this book about a little girl, Fatma. She was my kidnapper's uh, daughter. And I would teach her Urdu and talk to her in English and tell her about my travels. She's just the most beautiful child. You know, she had these big blue eyes and blonde hair. And and I used to laugh with her and joke with her and, you know, like uh, teach her. And we used to paint together. So one day she came in and said, make me a dachshund, which is like a pickup truck. So as I painted the car pink and then I made a flower on the door and as I was making the flower suddenly she saw it and she looked and she's like what are you doing and I and I have my own kids right and I've seen them throw tantrums I've seen them be angry I've seen all emotions with children but I've never seen rage I've never I've seen tantrums but I've never seen rage she was angry at you for drawing the flower so angry and just burning and saying to me that who will take me seriously when I go to do my suicide bombing this was a three and a half year old child. So, you know, the indoctrination is deep. And you attribute a lot of this to, I mean, Muhammad Ali, he, he must have been quite a charismatic person in a way. No, this was done by the women. Mm-hmm. The women were aspiring suicide bombers. The woman who saved my life, Abdul Aziz's mother, Muhammad Tahir Farooq's wife, Muhammad Ali's mother in law. She was registered she as was number on, one. She was on the list to be become a suicide bomber. She bomb. was the number one name. Obviously, they wouldn't let her go because she was like the status symbol of the group, you know, Muhammad Tahir Farooq's wife. Yeah. So, but her name was number one. So, whoever came in, they would say, Look, look who wants to go. So, you know, the men would get motivated and the women would get like There was a woman, Uzbek woman, who went to Balochistan and blew up near a check post from the IMU. So the same woman who took mercy on me would kill me at a traffic light. Don't think that she was a... Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't speak. She was only kind to me, but 
I am not delusional. I am not Muhammad Ali. I know what she was, and she indoctrinated those children, and and that indoctrination happens at a young. So I, when I was six, I started working on Lego. You know, Lego mm-hmm. was my thing. But when they are six, they are assembling and disassembling guns. Quick, you know, you and me, six-year-olds, quickly, who drew it fast? This is something I'm very curious to get your thoughts on, because at some point, you saw Muhammad Ali, your captor. You saw him dead. dead. And what was the circumstance of that, and how did you react to, to this sight? I was in a room with women and and children, and just before he died, he told all these women and children, "It's better to take your own life than to surrender to the Taliban." Mm-hmm. And they, three, four of them, were wearing suicide vests, and they literally just were ready to go right there. And so, so hail my guard was with me, and I was like, "What? You have to stop them!" Like. So he was like, you know, literally like just trying to make two women who are about to blow themselves up, don't do it, don't do it. So they literally walked outside, outside the room that we were in and blew themselves up. And I just ran. As I was, as I got out of that room, Muhammad Ali was like right outside and like, you, you kind of have to read it in the book as well. I don't want to give everything away, but he literally kind of realized like, you know, you see a whole world falling apart. And then I suddenly, the most important thing for him in the last four and a half years was not that important anymore because mm-hmm. he could see all those plans of Rome and conquest. And now it's like everything is over, just dead. We're all going to die. So when I said, kill me or let me go, literally, he didn't even care. He didn't care anymore what happened with me. So I ran away and there's it's a long story about what happened and then I was actually caught by a Taliban patrol and brought right back down. <laughs> to and the side of all the carnage. The first thing I saw when I got back to that village was his dead body. And by the way, a pile of dead bodies. And one of the only men who survived was also Sohail. Mm. My God. So he surrendered. Do you know what became of him? He was with me till the end. Uh, obviously, we were split apart and I was kept with the Pakistanis and the Arabs and he was kept with the Uzbeks and the Uzbeks were kept in very harsh conditions because, you know, the war was against them. Mm. So they took all the other people in the village and they separated them from the Uzbeks and the only lucky thing that happened for me was somehow convincing them that I wasn't an Uzbek. I actually told them I was a British uh, fighter. <laughs> I'd, I'd come you from... pretended to be uh, a foreign pretend, fighter. A foreign fighter who'd come to learn to blow myself up. And, you know, just got caught up <laughs> with this Uzbek Taliban. So you're now held by the, the Afghan Tal- Taliban for six, seven months in an Afghan Taliban jail. How do you then convince them that you are? I want to leave this to you, really, because it's a crazy story. The escape is like, is like crazy. Like what I did, I made up a guy, I like pretended to be someone else. and you Pretended to be a Like a Yusuf. proper Cinderella, Yusuf Britannia. I call myself Yusuf Britannia. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was like the Cinderella story for the terrorist world, you know, like young guy from England leaves his Christian wife and Christian Mm -hmm. parents and takes this route, the same route that they told me they take, you know, this Turkey, France, Turkey, (laughs) Iran, Balochistan into Afghanistan. Same route I told them, how I took it, how I got here. In a way, you must assume the identity of... Of Sohail. And all the information that they had told me and said that there's no use, this information, we don't care. I knew all the commanders' names. I knew all the access routes. I knew everything. So all of the information, like, you know how you're saying, why would they give you this? You have to read this, how I create this guy. Also, the guy, like, you know, I made mistakes, like, you know, 
I wanted to be a suicide. Yusuf Britannia wanted to be a suicide mm-hmm. bomber. You know the regard that people have for a suicide bomber? You know how quickly they recruit them and send them? I was like, you're right. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> I don't want them to like put a jacket on me. <laughs> on your way then, mate. <laughs> So after your escape, you're reunited with your family. I wonder, you said you've broken down many times since then. But in that immediate aftermath, were you aware of how difficult it could be to transition back to quote I wasn't. Normal I was so life? excited I... and really life hits you like a baseball bat. You know, <laughs> I think the second day I got up and went to office, because, you know, I told you I'm sleep- like I have issues with my sure. sleep, right? So I wake up at 5.30 in the morning, so 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm the first guy at work, really excited, 12.30. <laughs> two days after? Yeah, yeah, two days after company. getting back, I was in office, right? And then at like 12.30, I was delirious. Like, you know, like the fact that I'd been sitting at a desk from 9 to 12.30. Yeah. And I hadn't done that in five years. Five years is a long time to be away from whatever you've done. You know, like I was a good football player. I, I mean, my brother was amazing, but I was good. And I couldn't play football anymore. I was a good basketball player. I can't forgot how to dribble a ball. Because you're physically weak. Physically, I'm weak, but also, you know, like habit is consistency. If you don't do something consistently, you forget it. Your body is made that way. Of course, I can play football again and I can bounce the ball again and dribble and, you know, but you work so much harder than you've ever had to do it because you grew up with these qualities. Yeah. I started playing basketball when I was in class two. So the fact that I couldn't play it at 33 suddenly because of a five-year, you know, absence, I couldn't understand. Why can't I grip the ball? Why can't I shoot? Why is my my life? And it was like this with everything, driving. The first car I took out was a Hummer. And I went and hit a security check post. No fault of my own. I I wasn't driving fast. It's just, Mm. you know, lane, understand, forgotten. I just... This is in the immediate weeks after you... Immediate weeks, right? Because I wanted to do everything again. Mm. Is this because you wanted to almost make up for time? Lost I did. I did. You do. You have... You, you're like... You've made these bucket lists. You've, you've got these... I want to do this and I want to do this. And God, if you free me, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. And suddenly you're free and it's like so overwhelming and you can't remember how to eat properly. You know, yeah. your, which hand do I hold my fork in? Which hand do I... I'm literally telling you, I was like a 32, 33-year-old baby. I had to learn everything again. How to sit. You know, I, I hadn't sat in a chair for five years. Yeah. You know, I, and I developed knee problems. I, I got, you know, my legs would go to sleep. My, I had a slouch. I just, every single thing. And, and when I say breakdown, I, I I mean, like with office. I felt embarrassed going to work after a month because I couldn't stay there past 12 o'clock. You know, at 12 o'clock, I would be falling asleep. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, you know, I'm Salman Tassi's son. He was such a successful businessman. I have thousands of people that work in my company. I'm an embarrassment. I should not go here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I stopped going to work. For like a year, I just, I just, as you used to say, I'm writing the book, I'm writing the book, I'm writing the book. And I'll never forget, I have to give my brother a lot of credit, by the way, this is his old college, so he went to King's, ah. yeah, and uh, he came to me once and he sat with me, and this is my younger brother, you have to understand, right? So when I say support and love, it comes in, in ways that sometimes your younger brother becomes your older brother. Mm-hmm. And he just came and he put his arm around me and he's like, you're really good at what you do. 
you need to come back to office and don't worry 12 11 go whenever you want but sit there let them know that you're there you're a face of our family of what we've been through and when they see you sitting there and fighting to sit there they'll really respect us a lot more you think that it's demoralizing and you're losing respect but you're not you don't understand how you can even inspire people just by sitting on a chair and i really need you you know i've been doing this alone without you for 6 years and i was your younger brother you used to do all this and at 12 o'clock he'd see i was getting tired so he'd take me for lunch and we'd drive around for an hour and then he's like hey i've got this quick meeting you want to come with me and i'd be like yeah let's do it and then at 1 o'clock we'd go for a meeting and it ended 2 and he's like i got this other thing you want to come with me be like sure 3 suddenly i'm touching 3:30 i'm touching 4 and now it's like you know 5 9 10 two days in the, in the office so you know it's amazing like and i'll tell you another thing like my younger sister she's just the most phenomenal human being and i love her like she's you know i'm very protective about her but when i came back she's the one who told me to do this She said you need to write, to, write, to write the book. I told her that I used to keep these diaries and she said your grandfather was a writer and your father was a writer. Your father was in solitary confinement and tortured, you were in solitary confinement and tortured and you have a unique opportunity to be in the same league as the man that you admired most. Your father was held in solitary confinement. Yeah, for fighting against Zaul Haq, who was the military dictator in Pakistan. This was in the 1980s. 80s and 70s, late 70s, early 80s, late 80s, middle 80s, <laughs> early 90s when Ashri so yeah. And so when you were held in solitary confinement, did you ever think back to what your father must have experienced all the time? He was my strength and I and I remember the point where I was like, you know, my father did all this willingly. He gave up his freedom. The military used to give him a choice. They'd like just be quiet and go home. He said, "Can't do that. Have to speak." Not for himself. He was, you know, he he came from nothing, but he built his privilege. He worked hard to, you know, be financially successful. Mm-hmm. He didn't need to do this. And the fact that he could used to scare his opponents. This man has no fear. Did you then contrast his situation with yours? I, I'm not, not even there. I'm not even 1.1% of the man that he was. You know, the, it's very different when you willingly allow all this to happen to you because you have conviction and you believe in something. My father was murdered for defending an innocent Christian woman falsely accused of blasphemy by mm-hmm. Pakistan's draconian blasphemy laws, and he fought not just the laws but also held the woman's hand. And he said that I will continue to hold her hand even if I'm the last man standing. and just a few days later he was his body was filled with 29 bullets of a kalashnikov you know my own kidnapping i have a sense of triumph because i escaped mm. and i might you know my father's murder wasn't exchanged for my life and my family wasn't destroyed by paying some ridiculous ransom you know and so i have a sense of triumph but what happened to my father is a wound that can never heal he was stolen from me he might be the governor and the most successful businessman and blah 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 blah, blah but for me he was just a bug you know all of the other things were secondary so in a way your sister's suggestion to write this memoir was then a way of reconnecting with yeah. your relationship you know, I, with your I father i would say that he was with me throughout it's very sad i'll tell you uh, there's a story in this book uh, there's a friend of my mother's so i escaped on the 29th of february on 2016 in 2016 it's a leap year and at the exact same time that i escaped from this prison in afghanistan my father's killer was hung and i had no idea it took me 7 days to get back to pakistan 
the morning that i escaped and this man was hung a friend of my mother's was saying her morning prayers this is a true story i'm not making this up and as she came out of sajda she saw my father standing in front of her it's written in this book um and she saw a ghost and mm. she was awake and he said to her tell amna that my work is done i'm going to rest so now this friend of my mother is calling her from singapore or somewhere and screaming i just saw your you know my mother is a very grounded woman and she's like poor thing it's had a bad dream and she's like amna i just saw salman and he said tell amna that my work is done tell amna that my work is done i'm going to rest i was thinking my mother said she's a mad woman i mean she's obviously having a you know meltdown i don't know she you, you can't be so rejectful of someone either who's screaming and saying i just saw this i'm not dreaming i'm not dreaming sure and 7 days later i came home i mean you know this is like crazy like I, i felt like my father was with me throughout this experience and it's really sad but i tell people that i don't know how he would have been like if this had happened to me while he was alive you know he was a powerful man mm. but to be so powerless is defeating i know he died fighting for something much larger than me but i felt like maybe you know he watched over me through this time it couldn't have happened if he hadn't been taken from what i know of your story being kidnapped being held hostage for almost 5 years surviving drone strikes bombings carpet bombings in fighting between i am you bad humor well, bad that's that was worse than the, <laughs> you know <laughs> you're very lucky to be alive then yeah i am i'm very blessed but also emotionally and psychologically going through an experience like what you went through i would think would permanently change you in some way hmm. uh you do change you completely change you you know it's like a child being exposed to cruelty mm-hmm. you know he loses his innocence they lose their innocence and sometimes we in our societies in bubbles of privilege that we live in because all our parents work very hard to create some kind of safety net for us you know and we just everyone has different things so we're always looking at somebody else and saying how much does he have but we never realize how hard our own parents have worked just mm-hmm. so that we can have what we have and you kind of get lost in all this and and yeah i just when you are exposed to the worst of humanity it changes you a little bit when i see my mother and what she's been through and i see her smiling and i see her waking up every morning and leading the work and leading the office and then like small things like she does her gardening as well she has vegetables she's a grandmother and when i see this from her then it makes me want to work and it makes me want to do better you know if something is holding me back in life like i'm telling you the the fact that i couldn't go to work was embarrassing i felt embarrassed and ashamed and someone who's been through an experience like me feeling embarrassed and ashamed for months coming back it's not easy mm. other things the world had moved on my best friends were married with kids now <laughs> and i missed everything i missed my own brothers and sisters wedding i missed it's just the world doesn't stop for you you know they would hold my hand every single time sometimes i felt i couldn't do it sometimes i felt too tired sometimes i felt angry sometimes i felt you know ashamed but they would always be there holding my hand and and just making sure that i'm going towards the finish line do you consider therapy at some point did i did i did i did uh, you have to mm. you have to do a lot of 
work. Look, you have to work on yourself, mm. right? It's not like oh, I came back and ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> Every you, disappointment reminds you of what you have to do. Were you, you know? diagnosed with uh, PTSD? I'm very lucky. I wasn't, uh, but I've been diagnosed with uh, tinnitus, which is like a ringing in your ear, which by the way Constant. drives you. Yeah, yeah, it's very. It drives you crazy. I've been lucky that. Uh, because I've seen I've just been in a war zone for five years and I've met US I was in Aspen and I was doing a talk and I met some US Marines and they said to me how did you survive why do you not why don't you have PTSD and I, I said I don't know I think I've just God has been kind in that one department I mean I've got a slouch I've got a deteriorating knee I've had my gallbladder removed I've <laughs> lost hair I've <laughs> everything you can imagine except PTSD so maybe we can trade <laughs> I don't know uh, but you know I, I also try to laugh about it a little bit that helps by the way healing by the way a lot of people think maybe humor is something uh, like it's an avoid mechanism mm. it's not it's the most powerful expression and if you can actually laugh at some of the tragedy that's happened to you, it means you're looking at it as an experience. Experiences, good or bad, help you grow. You know, if you can look at a tragedy as an experience, as a learn, as something to learn from, then regardless of how hard that is, at least you overcame it. Everything in life is not a success. The most successful people in the world will tell you that whatever they achieved is just what you see. To get there was breaks you. Mm. It, you remold yourself and rebuild yourself and re a thousand times. And this whole process of now, you've written your memoir, you're recounting your experience in different interviews with people that you meet on the road. Every time you recount this story, are you reframing it in your mind? Are you recalling those memories and reshaping them? I try to keep it different. Uh, I try to keep every interview. You know, the thing is that, like, I've tried to sum this up in five and a half years, but this was actually ten. I have nine other books like this lying at home. Mm. This is the final version. As in you've literally rewritten, you've written I, other books? And taken out so much. Yeah. You know, like, um, five and a half years, you can't sum it in 220 pages. So there's so much that, like, you know, Sometimes when I'm talking, I'll remember some, you know, crazy story. Um, but yeah, but that's just, that's how this experience is. So I've been lucky that none of the interviews st sound the same. The story is always different. But, you know, the theme is constant. I was kidnapped and tortured. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, this might look like a tragedy, but it's the most amazing opportunity that I've ever gotten in my life. I don't think I was meant to be a writer. I don't think I was meant to do any of this. I meet wonderful people. I get invited to speak about this. I also see that sometimes when I'm talking to people, they they feel happy when, when I'm done. They don't feel like that was an awful conversation with about an awful story. They actually come out and they're like, man, that guy... You know, he... he your story is one of resilience. Yeah, well, I, I mean, not. I, I prefer if you felt better after you, you know, you didn't yeah. feel like I, you know, put some burden on you with, with the con. When you come out and you feel happy and you tell somebody else, I mean, it, and that helps. Like, it, it helps in telling the story again and again and again. And I, by the way, have been doing this for eight months and a lot of people ask me, by the way, isn't this traumatic for you? And I'm like, just the traveling. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I'll tell you something. I got invited to Old Trafford 
And I met Eric Ten Hag and I met Martial and I met Lindelof. And by the way, Lindelof and Martial had no idea why I was there. <laughs> and Eric Ten Hag was funny because he walked in and one of the Dutch the guys was friends with his father who was introducing us. And he goes, you know, told him this man escaped from Afghanistan and he was kidnapped by the Taliban. He's come over here. So he just looks, he's like, who is Taliban man? <laughs> I was like, me. <laughs> so you know what I mean? Like these amazing doors have opened for me and... I get to travel. I mean, I always got to travel, but like, you know, I get to travel. I got invited to SOAS, which is my old school. I got invited to King's, which is my brother's old yeah. school. Um, so it's great. Thank you, Al-Qaeda <laughs> Taliban. It's, it's truly incredible what you've been through. I mean, you, you've it's like you've lived multiple lifetimes. Yeah. You know, I say if a cat has nine lives, I've had about 145 <laughs> and I just dodged a taxi coming here as well. So 146. <laughs> but it's it's really uh, it, it's inspiring to hear your approach to this and how you've dealt with a lot of the horrific experiences that you've been through and the strength that you've drawn from those. You know, meeting wonderful people like you and talking about it and having this opportunity it helps and. Uh, you know, we've had a great conversation. You've been laughing as well. So I got you to laugh about, the, <laughs> about it as well, right? And, and you know, that's the only way that I can get my experience across to people. It also creates a little bit of empathy, love, happiness. And, you know, the humor helps. You know, once I was very upset, uh, someone had hurt me. And uh, I was very upset and my father came and he put his arm around me. And he said to me, um, he said, so he was like, son, if you can look back, and life is not easy, and roads, the road is always bumpy, and you get scratches and bruises. But every time something bad happens to you, and it doesn't, it's not instant, but with time, if you can look back and laugh, just think of it as God played a trick on you. You know, how funny is it that you're sitting here crying, but one day you'll narrate this story to someone and be like, Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> I can't believe that happened. And, you know, and that stayed with me always. And if you can laugh at something that happened to you, and if you can heal from it and laugh about it, and really, like, be like, can you remember when we were in that, you know, principal's office or when, like, that girl broke my heart or when my father caught me or police caught me or the Taliban <laughs> caught me? Or, I don't know how extreme everyone's... One of those is very different from the others. <laughs> but if you can look back and if you can smile, and if you can make people laugh about it, then you've grown. And the only way to recover from a setback is to grow and to learn from it. And that's anything in life. Shabazz, thank you so much. Man, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by the School of Security Studies communications team. For more information on our work, visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the War Studies podcast.